Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. This is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Hee-Jung Chung about the flexibility paradox, why flexible working leads to self-exploitation. Um, so welcome to the uh, podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Um, th- this is both a kind of you know brilliant book and is fascinating and tells us a lot about contemporary work in life. But at the same time, uh, it speaks to almost exactly um, th- this moment and the last two years. Um, and I guess the place to start is, is probably with the title, actually. Um, and it'd be good to, to know a bit about what the flexibility paradox is, why you called the book that, what, what the kind of key idea is underneath that term. Okay, so the flexibility paradox is if you think about flexible working or working from home, a lot of people have the idea that, well, they're not really working. You've been slacking off and they're not very productive. Flexible workers are not motivated, committed, etc. Right? That's the kind of popular idea that's been spread across not just the UK, but across the world, if you want. But the paradox is that when workers have all that freedom and control over especially when and where they work, what we find is that they end up working harder and longer. And that's what the paradox is all about. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating the kind of two almost sort of directions that, that we, we've seen here. On, on the one hand, as, as you say, you know, a real kind of um, focus on uh, productivity from people working from home. And yet at the same time, particularly in specific political discourses, this idea that people are like slacking off or, or not working properly or, you know, kind of taking holidays at home. Going to the and, fridge and to I'm, get I'm, some cheese. <laughs> exactly. In, in a very sort of depressing uh, comment from Britain's, I guess, current, but possibly by the time this goes out, former um, Prime Minister. And I mean, we're going to talk about the pandemic uh, a bit later. And, and what's interesting is... I guess what might have been the case if you'd written this, you know, w- without the pandemic. But before that, before we get into to the specifics, and you'd mentioned flexible working, um, and I wonder if you could both sort of 
sketch out a bit more about, about that? Because it's not just sort of working from home, is it? But also what's been going on to kind of drive the rise of flexible working, you know, changes in labor markets, changes in technology, um, things like, you know, changes in job security as well. Yeah. So, okay. So flexible working can be considered many things. The thing that I'm really interested in in the book is about these arrangements that give control uh, to workers, to workers more control about when they work and where they work. So where they work, meaning like working from home, but it doesn't have to be just from home. It could be perhaps in a different location, but essentially outside of your normal premises. The other type of flexible working is about schedules. So we're not talking about part-time working where you reduce the number of hours you work, but more about you do your, let's say, full-time load, but you might start a bit early. So like start at eight o'clock, seven o'clock rather than nine and end early or start a bit later and end later. And there are some people, an increasing number of people, where that working hour from nine to five doesn't, isn't even really a thing. So academics, for example, there isn't really a structured way in which we or, you know, act, say which, when your working day starts and even ends. So that's the flexible working we're talking about. And if you think about some of the key trends that allowed for the rise of flexible working, there's a whole range of things. So, I mean, one thing I think is about the kind of rise of, of the demand for work-life balance. So people are increasingly, especially given that a lot of women and mothers are, are taking part in the labor market, not only mothers, but also fathers, but other people with care responsibilities, including your own self-care. So disabled workers are wanting to have a bit more of a balance between work and family lives. And that flexibility gives you that a bit of that freedom. Well, technically should give you that freedom to fit work around your private or, or family demands. Um, technological change is a, a, a big driver, as we've seen during the pandemic, where a lot of the work we didn't even think was possible now can be done remotely, including teaching online, um, as well as even medical services can be delivered quite efficiently um, through online systems. And of course, office jobs and a lot of tech jobs, could. it doesn't even really matter where you are. Um, uh, another thing that's happening again is about the fact that uh, real estate is, you know, costs are rising and has been rising, especially in places like London or San Francisco or, or New York, where it is really hard to keep everybody in the office. So a lot of even government uh, government offices have been promoting working from home because they physically cannot have everybody come into the office because they just can't pay the rental prices. But also it's just flexible working is just something, even if you don't have, let's say, family, a lot of people want that more control and, and you know, the freedom to do when, you know, work when and where they want, because there's a lot of different things outside of work that they want to adhere to. But uh, the problem is, and this is kind of where a lot of my work comes in, it also kind of opens up an avenue for rather than workers working anywhere and any time, um, it kind of opens up for workers working all the time and everywhere. So really being able to use that flexibility to almost hustle harder <laughs> in the workplace. Yeah, and I mean, I, we'll come on to this actually, because when you drill down to it, there are really clear um, patterns in terms of who is working longer, you know, who who it sort of falls upon, um, who the paradox kind of benefits, maybe maybe least we might say. Before that, though, I guess the the other thing, and you've sketched out some of the kind of underlying trends, is to know a bit about actually how much of this is the 
um, across the world. And, and I should say one of the things that the book is great on is, you know, it's not a book about Britain. It's not a book about America. It's, it's got this real kind of, um, you know, attempt to have a, a global uh, focus. And, and one way to, to illustrate that is this sense of actually how much flexible working is there. Yeah. So I'm a comparative uh, uh, sociologist. So I really feel like only by comparing different countries are you able to really understand the impact of structures on our attitudes and behaviors. But putting that aside, so with flexible working, um, pre-pandemic, so just before the pandemic, you see that about a quarter, a little bit over a quarter of Europeans across the kind of the member states of that time, 28 member states, um, had uh, access to flexible schedules. That means flexi time to starting and ending times of work, but also maybe have that extra bit of schedule uh, or working time autonomy, as we call, where you have almost complete control over not only when, but also how much you work, as long as it's kind of like project-based work, if you want. And with homeworking, interestingly enough, despite that the all the things that I've just spoken about, technological changes, the demand for it, and, and all that possibility, only about one out of eight workers were working from home. Um, and that was only also just really ad hocly, like once or twice a month. And this is, you know, when you're like, oh, I have to work from home because the plumber has to come and fix something type of uh, uh, homeworking. So there wasn't really that much of regular homeworking. Having said that, there are huge cross-national variations where just uh, flexible schedules alone, if you go to the Nordic countries, you have approximately 50% or more of the population, the working population being able to have flexible schedules. Um, and of course, you you know, those countries also have a lot of workers working from home. And of course, the pandemic has changed everything. And as many of you have realized, like a lot of the work can actually be done from home and in a productive manner. So we do, at the peak of the pandemic, we saw approximately 50% of the population working from home on a very regular basis. And that has declined somewhat, but I think a lot of the, uh, the working population is still very much doing that, what we call hybrid working, where you go into the office a few days and work at home a few days a week. You mentioned this sense of, you know, some people are doing this, some people aren't, but 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 actually kind of who um, it, it, it is doing this? Because one of the kind of central things with, with the paradox, and I'd, I'd mentioned this already, is this idea of it doesn't really benefit everybody equally. So what are the kind of um, characteristics of who gets access to flexible working. Yes, and see, do you, one of the popular beliefs around flexible working is that it's a mother's arrangement. So it's like mothers or female-dominated occupations or sectors are the ones where there's a lot of flexible working. And some people even go on to say that that's why a lot of female-dominated occupations are paid less because, oh, you have this wonderful kind of flexible working and working conditions, so why do you need extra pay, right? So you're kind of... This is called the compensating differentials for those of you who like jargony things. But essentially, like you are trading off better working conditions for higher pay, right? Now, empirically, if you look at the data and the data in the UK, data across the world, the people who have most access to flexible working arrangements um, are those in very higher occupational uh, groups. So it's, we're talking about professionals, managers, some, you know, uh, associate professionals, that kind of jobs, like the top occupations. Uh, those are who are, again, similarly, those who are higher educated are more likely to have access as well. Um, in addition to that, though, what we find also is that it's usually more like men, especially with homeworking. It was men that were able to have access to um 
homeworking compared to women or, or, or workers in female-dominated occupations, one of which is because men tend to have a higher occupational status. Um, but have even controlling for that, what you find is that a lot of managers felt that especially mothers were not going to be very productive in the in, at home because they had other competing demands, um, which you could talk about a bit later. So it was uh, women and female-dominated occupations who actually had the least access to flexible working, completely throwing you know the uh, compensating differential theory out of the window. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really fascinating early on in the book because you're kind of laying out um, I guess the paradoxes of the paradox uh, itself, how gender comes to the fore, you know, kind of straight away. And that seems to be actually at, at the root of um, many of the rationales for uh, flexible working. And I guess the question that, that I sort of have on this is, is sort of like, does it work? Um, you know, are companies getting better performance out of their staff? Are companies, you know, being more family uh, friendly, does it help people's kind of, you know, work-life balance? What are the sort of um, payoffs uh, to flexible working? So with the performance issue, which has been really like a, a big theme, um, the hot potato, if you want, of a lot of the debates ongoing, it's it's hard to know because with performance, it's, it's a very ambiguous kind of uh, like morphous thing to measure. But having said that, there have been some really interesting case studies and, and experimental studies by colleagues who have done uh, field experiments on this. And you do find that flexible schedules as well as homeworking do result in kind of better performance outcomes, one of which, again, is to do with the whole flexibility paradox that they might end up working harder and longer than you expected them to, or, or compare to those who work in the office and work very fixed schedules. Um, another reason why, you know, you might get better performance is, is because of the increased motivation and satisfaction, uh, and sometimes perhaps better kind of reduced sickness and absenteeism, which we definitely find evidence for the flexible workers tend to have reduced levels of, you know, some issues around absenteeism and sickness. Um, with work-life balance, this is a really tricky thing. So flexible workers are generally happier with their work-life balance, but do they have better work-life balance is a question. And what we find is that the answer is, is not really is the answer. It's not like they have hard, like in, in European data, what I find is that actually those who are people who work from home and have flexible schedules actually have higher levels of what we call work-family conflict. What that means is feeling that work and the, the pressures and demands of work conflict with family life. So you, this is another paradox, if you want, where that flexible working, which a lot of managers hesitate to give to workers and is completely considered a work-life balance kind of uh, arrangement, don't necessarily <laughs> end up reducing workers' work-family conflict. I'm intrigued by that for lots of different reasons, because, again, I mean, I've, I've mentioned this a few times. It's an illustration of this this paradox, you know, the idea of having more control over our work and then our work, you know, dominating more of our life. And the thing that, that sort of comes to mind about that is, is why? Why is there this um, flexibility paradox? Why is it that seemingly if we get, you know, kind of, more control of when we start work, more control of when we do work, more control of where we do work, that things like, as you say, you, you know, work-family conflict 
rates kind of go up or, or go um, go higher? What, what sort of explains the, the flexibility paradox? So, so, okay, why do workers work harder and longer when they have that freedom to control the boundaries of work and family? Why is it that when the boundaries are blurred, that work encroaches on family and private time. So there are different theories. So one of the theories that were put forward by previous scholars like Kellyer and Anderson was there is one is about um, gift exchange. So that, oh, flexible working wasn't really common. So when you get it, you're like, oh, because I want to make sure that my employers doesn't doesn't take it away from me. So that's why I need to work harder and longer. So it's the same thing as when you give kids kind of access to your car. They like they want to make sure that they do a good job so that they don't get your keys taken away. Um, the second thing is slightly different where employers actually give the access to flexibility to enable overwork, right? So there are cases, and academia, UK academia especially, is a good example of this where, oh, yeah, it's like, oh, we don't have working hours in your contract. You could work whenever and wherever, but they slowly have increased the workload that academics had to do by reducing admin support staff and increasing the amount of admin work that we have to do in terms of TEFREF, et cetera. We could do a whole another podcast on this, so I'm not going to go further into this. But that employers do use use that flexible boundaries as a way to overcome some of the limitations that we have in our labor laws to increase workload and without having to pay overtime premiums and without having to technically not go against labor laws. Another thing, and the third thing is about enabled intensification. So there is that, oh, you know, if you work the time that you want to work, then if you're a night owl, you could work in the evenings. If you're a very morning person, you can work in the mornings and you're not constrained by the nine to five. Also, if you work from home, you know, you're able to, um, well, not only save on the commuting times, but you don't have to like, it's, it's you know, commuting is really exhausting, right? So you save the energy and you're able to work more focused at home. So that's the enabled intensification. But if you take that a little bit further, and this is the self-exploitation element that I write in the book, which I've been put forward by some other colleagues as well, is that actually flexible working and the rise of flexible working came with this change in this work culture that we've seen over the past few decades, where to become presenting yourself as a professional, someone who is a serious person, serious worker, that you have to perform these long hours work. So, and a good example, again, is academia, but doesn't necessarily pertain only to academia, where oh, no, you know, if you're a serious academic, you should be working 70 hours. That's kind of the paradigm that we work in and that you have to be always connected, always available. And that flexible boundary almost kind of incultivates a work culture where you're just constantly available and constantly working, where Masmanian et al. talks about this downward spiral of increased competition across workers. Um, and that is you know, exacerbated by kind of uh, corporate policies such as performance-related pay or a lot of that kind of performance uh, uh, evaluations that come in recently. And also on the larger societal level, we also see that, you know, not only are people considered like you you are your job, right? Your jobs and work used to be something where you make your living and you live outside of work. Like work wasn't necessarily how you defined yourself. But now, like just even like 30, 40 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. But now the culture that we live in is where 
we are defined by work. We get our self-worth through work. And the busyness at work is how we show society, but also to yourself, how important you are or how, how much value you hold in the society. And that's not been helped by the fact that the welfare state has diminished so many of the job protection, income protection it used to deliver so that all of the issues around like making sure you have enough money to live in, you have a job, is now on your shoulders. It is you, your individual risk that you need to make sure that you are profitable in the market. And that could all be wrapped up very nicely using, I mean, oh, again, I don't want to try to use too much jargon here, but using Foucault's ideas, homo economicus, and the trends that we see in that where now from the 1970s onwards, like we are seeing kind of the individualized individual where every interaction we have is essentially a marketized, you know, uh, investment profit relationship and in that context that freedom over your work isn't really true freedom because it is confined by so many of those structural cultural contexts where that freedom can only be used to utilize to to exploit the workers even more than what managers would have been able to do. So it becomes a, if you want, an ultimate exploitation tool. I mean, one of the things I really, really like about the book is what you've outlined there. I guess is is a summary of quite a lot of um, contemporary critical um, theory on the nature of uh, of work. But you don't sort of stop by saying, you know, here is this uh, theorization I have about work and its relationship to, to society and, and the self. You basically go and prove it. So, um, uh, and I mean, you, you do this in, in a lot of, of different ways. And I guess the kind of, the, the, it, it's, it's tricky, isn't it, for a podcast? Because actually, there's quite a lot of good visual material in the book. But, but what sort of... Um, empirical evidence is there to substantiate this idea that, you know, the flexibility paradox has given us, you know, both more control, but also ultimately rendered us as sort of uh, always on, always working and, and as taking control away. Yeah. So I'll just give you two stories in a way, because one is, um, you know, I'm, like there's a lot of, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an empirical sociologist where like I, I use a lot of data and qualitative data, quantitative data to show kind of evidence things. But um, in the book, I try to do a lot of theory work as well and trying to combine, which was really difficult, by the way. <laughs> but a lot of the empirical evidence, as, as, you, as David said, like you need to really see the book to be able to understand the ins and outs of it. But one thing that we found using ger- both German and UK data is we tracked individuals and see how much overtime work they carry out once they you know, start working flexibly. So we're not even comparing flexible workers versus non-flexible workers because there might be other underlying factors there, right? So we just track that same individual to see what happens. And what do we find is that people start doing more overtime hours, <laughs> like up to two hours a week, which doesn't seem like a lot, but two hours a week is quite significant, especially given that this is the mean, which means there are people who do way more than that. Um uh, another thing is about routine workers. So with routine workers, there's a really interesting study uh, conducted by Bloom et al. where he used call center workers were to see how many, what you do if people were working from home. So half of the workers were working from home on a few days and the others were working in the office or in the, in the call center. And what they find is that 
they're working harder and longer, but they weren't necessarily working longer hours because they have more fixed schedules, but essentially they weren't taking breaks. So the people who are working from home were doing more calls, but then also just, just not taking any breaks. So again, working harder and longer, slightly different in terms of the way it manifests itself, but you see it across different occupations. And again, we're talking about Chinese call centers, German workers, UK workers, and we see evidence, of course, in the US as well. And this is just coming not just from a single country, a single occupation, but across different occupations and across uh, uh, different countries. And crucially, different demographics as well. Um, so, you know, this isn't a national thing. It isn't an occupation thing. But actually, one, one of the things the book does in, in quite a lot of detail is it says this is a very gendered thing as well. And I'm very interested to know both um, what the kind of gendered perspective here is, but also, and you've, you've sort of touched on this already, how it relates to things like um, unpaid domestic work um, and what it means for particularly women's careers. Yeah, so one of the things we find is that, especially with the German and the UK data, when we're looking at large-scale data and following everybody around and then seeing how much overtime, and unpaid overtime, if I may, in the UK case, they do, um, we found that it was men who do more overtime hours compared to women. So in the German case, we found that men were with working time autonomy doing two hours extra a week, whereas women were doing only one. And you're like, oh, okay, then women are less prone to this paradox. And then we realized, oh, we're looking at the wrong hours. We're only looking at paid working hours. So once you start looking at unpaid working hours, which means housework and childcare, you see that women are actually doing way more than men because... German women, for example, working from home, were doing three hours extra housework, a childcare, I meant, compared to women who were working fixed hours. So women were the manifestation of that paradox occurs at home for women. Why? Because the same, using the same kind of Foucauldian idea about like this whole marketization of self and family is that not only is it important for you to be marketable, it's now important to make sure your children are marketable in their future labor markets. And how do we do that? Is essentially, especially the higher educated moms, there's this whole intensive parenting culture where you have to spend more time with your children and enriching their activities, making sure that they have the best, you know, after school activities, making sure that they have the right amount of dietary nutrition, etc., have the right play dates, etc. And that is what women are doing with the flexible working. They're stretching their day, their 24 hours to the max, where not only they're doing more paid work, because flexible working allows for that, which is great, but I will talk about the baby later. They're doing more overtime compared to those of fixed hours, but then they're stretching their working years to the max to the, where they're fitting in all of the childcare and domestic work as well. So they're really, I mean, flexible working leads to exploitation, but it's really evident once you start looking at women and how that is essentially enabling the ex the extraction of women's labor to the maximum where they are showing signs of, of stress, essentially, because they are losing out on leisure time, personal time, et cetera, sleep, et cetera. I wonder, as the book kind of draws draws to the conclusions and, and sort of later on in the book, there's, there's an interesting, um, I suppose, consideration of, the idea that 
we might defend flexible working and there might be certain ways. And actually, again, you, you've sort of touched on this already. There might be certain ways that flexible working is good. It's just that it's offered in, and you know, you've talked about things like welfare states, but it's offered in contexts that basically mean it's only going to have bad outcomes. And, and I wonder, are there ways that we, we could kind of both sort of solve the paradox of flexibility, but also are there kind of institutional, um, economic, cultural arrangements that might make flexible working work better? Yeah, absolutely. Because so just taking about the gender paradox that I just talked about, that doesn't necessarily happen in all countries. So gender normative views about whose responsibility it is to do the domestic work and whose responsibility it is to do paid work, to do the breadwinning, shapes the way flexible working is used. So if you look at egalitarian countries like Sweden and Denmark, you find that those countries, men and women use flexible working similarly. So they'll do similar amounts of overtime, but also like domestic work compared to, let's say, UK, where it's more traditional compared to Poland, who is very much more traditional in their gender norms. Uh, similarly, I think the work culture, and I mean, you know, we have evidence to show that the work culture really matters. So in countries like the US and the UK, where this, there is a real prevalence of not only long hours work culture, but really centralizing work in, um, in our lives, a lot of this paradox kind of will happen more often uh, compared to, again, where in countries, you know, where work isn't so central, but also there's like very good work-life balance policies at the national level, really promoting the idea that work shouldn't be everything, that there should be a better work-life balance and where workers are protected because a lot of the, what we just talked about in terms of the paradox also stems from insecurity, the insecurity of being stigmatized when you're working flexibly, but also just the insecurity of, 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 unemployment and income insecurity when you're unemployed and in countries where those kind of, you know, uh, fears are, are less because the welfare state is better, but also when there's work, stronger worker bargaining powers, these kind of patterns do not exist. So, you know, these, you know, worker bargaining power, work culture, gender culture, all really matter in this. So flexible working can actually be really beneficial. And one of the things I do want to highlight is I'm a big proponent for flexible working because it enables workers who were previously unable to take part in the labor market to better take part. Again, women, uh, workers with care responsibility, disabled workers, etc. And increasingly, we are also seeing that baby workers as well as uh, uh, like LGBT plus workers find that, you know, homeworking enables maybe a better integration into the workplace because it enables a safer space in terms of workplaces. I mean, you mentioned lots of things that uh, both societies can change, you know, in, individuals might do better. Obviously, the past two years, we've seen what seem to be major social transformations as a result of the pandemic. But at the same time, um, you know, th there's quite a lot of continuity in, in terms of uh, the flexibility paradox. And, and, and to wrap up, I'm, I'm sort of interested both in terms of what the book says about the impact of the pandemic um, and maybe actually, you know, as we look uh, right at this very moment, what uh, the impact of the pandemic has been on the flexibility paradox. Mm. So with the pandemic, one of the things that really helped was that there was a government mandated 
home working regulation, which meant that everybody who could work from home had to work from home or not work at all. So a lot of managers who were hesitant in giving access, you know, workers access to flex working, especially home working, has uh, really opened up that space of home working and without flexible schedules as well. Because obviously, when you work in the office, you know, you have to kind of do nine to five, whereas when you're working from home, that kind of time boundaries also become a bit more flexible for many. Um, so, and with that, especially two, three years into the pandemic, workers as well as managers have found that it really helps, like, that home working actually really helped with the performance outcomes that workers were able to work from home, they were able to work better, that a lot of work was uh, was actually carried out in a better way than in the office. So that really changed, especially the shifting the ideas about flexible working and kind of doing away slightly of this idea of, okay, flexible workers are not as productive or motivated, et cetera. The problem we see is that a lot of that is being now clawed back, as we've seen from Apple, Google, Tesla. Um, Elon Musk has said it recently, like that, you know, uh, uh, that flexible worker, home workers are not really serious. That if you're really serious workers, that you should come in. That you know, working from home isn't as productive, uh, and really making trying to force workers back into um, back into the office. The great thing I see is, is that this whole flexible working experiment has also um, been coinciding with this whole great resignation. Um, labor markets across Europe, but also the US and U- UK somewhat, are facing a huge labor shortage. So it is a really unique time for workers to have a stronger you know, individual bargaining position where they can demand a bit more to their employers in terms of home working and flexible working. So there is a bit of hope for that. But having said that, again, there is a lot of kind of shifting back to the old patterns of, you know, stigmatizing flexible working and and also, you know, bringing back that long hours kind of in-office uh, uh, work culture uh, as, as we did, we had in, in pre-pandemic times. I'm sort of slightly hesitant to ask you my concluding question, which is what working on next given that you've spent a lot of time talking about the problems of overwork and the kind of you know relentlessness of um, of the way work sort of you know expands to fill people's time when they're you know not in the office or, or not commuting or, or whatever but it strikes me that the flexibility paradox um, in some ways is a kind of programmatic book you know it, it sets an agenda so I'm interested to know are you going to be doing more work around flexibility paradox for example how we can solve it and, and you know more maybe, you know, sort of applied work on, on how things can get better? Or are you thinking about moving on to other areas of comparative sociology, comparative uh, work and employment studies? Well, so I am still working on this. So one of the things that I'm doing is still kind of examining the flexibility stigma about who's flexible and who's homeworking is stigmatized more because um, there's evidence to say it's not men and, you know, white, heterosexual, able-bodied men, it's, it's going to be disabled workers, women with care responsibilities, and black ethnic minority groups. Um, but in addition to that, one of my kind of <laughs> longer goal is also about, you know, expanding workers' right, workers' right to time, and really tackling this long hours work culture. And I think I've already, I've kind of set off on a mission to tackle this long hours ideal worker culture where... It's it's assumed that long hours, especially in the office, is some s- sort of sign of productivity, commitment, motivation. 
And it's 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 utter BS if you want, um, because it's it's largely performative. It's completely performative. People who say they work 70, 80 hours a week, they don't. Um, and also it's it's negative, it, it results with negative productivity at the end to the point where the last kind of 10, 15 hours actually makes undoes undoes a lot of the productivity that you gain in the first 20 hours if you want. Um, so I'm in a way trying to promote that. And one of the ways I'm trying to do that is to look at potential policy solutions like the four-day week. Is that a way forward? Can we potentially shift the ideas of what a full-time working you know, hour is? Given that what we know about how the expansion of flexible working is likely to result in overtime, maybe the idea is that, okay, Let's just do shorter hours then. Let's just put the you know median not at forty, but let's put it at thirty because then at least even if it goes a little over two three hours over, that's not too bad, right? But also, I feel like you know, and this is what I kind of want to tell any kind of individual, uh, not necessarily research, but individuals who are interested in the book as well as interested in flexible working, is to really consider like your own working patterns and practices. I'm not saying, you know, if you're a workaholic, that's your fault, because I think there are cultural cues and normative views that push you into being like that. But let's all try to change our working culture and practices where we don't do long hours work. We don't don't glorify long hours work. And we change the ideas that work has to be balanced, that only through balancing work with other aspects of your life, may it be family, but not only family, like leisure, hobbies, volunteering, political activities, political activities or anything like only through that are you able to really not only do productive work, but also find out what is valued work. Like what is the real true value we need in our society? Because, you know, again, we are not only facing a climate crisis, but, you know, we we talk about, oh, we've reached peak, you know, like clothes production or furniture production. So we are at a point of, I mean, going a little bit philosophical here, but at a point where we need a little bit more reflexive time to figure out what we as human beings need to do in terms of valued work. And I think that's some of the things I would like to ponder upon if given the opportunity.